0: Sound recording like this thing in is progress. on the edge of uh, feeding back, and there's pretty good reverb in it. So I didn't want to come across that's as like a rock star or something with massive reverb. Um, Merry Christmas, everybody. Good to see all of you. <laughs> pretty thin crowd again. Um, Dan and I were joking. This is the Sunday usually that the youth pastor gets to preach, <laughs> but uh, I'm gonna hog it. So. Um, Want to invite our children? There we go. Whatever it was, it's gone. Um, Want to invite our children to Children's Church? Uh, Kathy will meet you in the back there. And um, let's begin with prayer. Lord, we celebrate at Christmas the greatest miracle, the most unimaginable truth that could happen. Infinite, perfect, holy, blessed, blissful, satisfied God the second person of the Trinity added to his immensity is an infinity, human nature. With its limitations and its finiteness, Lord, you added human nature to your infinity. And Lord, we thank you for doing that because that meant you could come for us, that you could come and be with us and rescue us. Lord, that you would be our God and we would be your people. And so we're grateful for the miracle of Christmas. And, uh, Lord, as we turn to your word now, we pray that um, we would understand what it is that you've done for us. We would see the the beauty of the incarnation and that we would uh, worship and trust you in these things. And, Lord, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters from this church who are out traveling. uh, Bring them back safely. Get them to where they're going. I pray that their their Christmas celebrations would be joyful. And we look forward to uh, fellowshipping with them again soon. And, Father, for all your churches um, around the globe, Lord, I pray that you would fill them with the measure of your Holy Spirit that is greater this year than it was last year and that uh, your your church would be engaged with the mission that you've given her, filled with the joy and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and and, um, becoming more holy, more like you. Lord, bless our time now in your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. On April 21st, 1820... During a lecture at the University of Copenhagen, a needle on a compass moved. That was it. That was the whole event. This small event where a compass needle just twitched was huge. What it represented was gigantic, and the professor who was lecturing could have easily overlooked it. But Hans Christian Orsted was lecturing on this fairly new science of electricity And what he had done is he had passed a uh, current through a wire and he noticed that it made the compass needle jump. And so after his lecture, he began to investigate this and and work into it and look at what was going on. A few months later, he wrote a paper and he discovered what we would call electromagnetism, that there is a relationship between electricity and magnetism. Now, Orsted, after this, he went on to study chemistry. And some of his greatest uh, accomplishments are that he figured out what makes black pepper spicy. He f- isolated the, um, the chemical in black pepper that makes it spicy. And he also produced almost pure aluminum, which was going to be pretty important later on. Aluminum's a pretty big thing. But his, his noticing that the compass needle moved, he, he recognized it and then he pressed on with something else. Well, others took notice of that. And that little jump of the compass needle actually changed the world. We would not have the world we have today had he not noticed that and recorded it and done something about it. Because what others found out was if you take that wire and you wrap it around an iron rod and you pass a current through it, it makes the iron rod a magnet. And when you shut it off, it stops being a magnet. This is called an electromagnet. And what they did with that was they began to play around with them and figure out what you could do with it. Well, that led to the invention of the telegraph. And now you could send signals hundreds of miles through a wire just by opening and closing that current to that, um, that electromagnet. And at the other end, it would pull down the, uh, the other end of the, uh, the, um, the uh, telegraph system. And Morse code was invented. And now we can communicate over hundreds of miles instantly rather than having to rely on semaphore, which is on only visual range or you know, sending up signal flares or something. Now you could actually have intelligent communication over a distance. Well, there was a German fellow who noticed that and he said, what happens if I hold a tuning fork near that electromagnet and turn it on and off? And he was able to induce uh, movement into that tuning fork and it began to sing. And that kind of stirred the idea, is there some way that we could communicate human voice over these wires? And so what they did is they put a, a cone at one end with a diaphragm and as it moved it changed the current in that, that electromagnet, which then duplicated at another one at the other end and now you could hear over wires and soon the telephone was born. And the, the genius, the, the, um, the uh, electrical genius, Nikola Tesla, discovered that if you took those electromagnets and you arranged them in a certain order, that it would actually make a motor turn. You could turn a spindle and now he invented the electric motor. It wasn't too long after that when people said, well, what happens if we turn the rod instead of applying electricity and it wound up producing electricity and we've got a generator Pretty soon after that, they figured out, you know what, we don't have to have wires to send electromagnetic pulses. We can do it through the air and radio is born. And not only that, but after radio was born, they thought, well, what happens if we bounce electromagnetic waves off of objects and radar comes along? And so they've discovered all of these things and then they get to television and what they do is they use those radio waves now to draw pictures. And so. Eventually, what they found out was this electromagnetic force was actually one of the four primitive forces of the universe, one of the four forces that can't be reduced to something else. It's electromagnetism, gravity, the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force is what makes up the universe. So scientists said, well, what happens if we look out into the universe and we listen for these radio waves? And now we're studying galaxies millions of miles away. And it all started because Hans Christian Osted noticed a compass needle twitch, and he did something about it. It was the smallest, the tiniest little thing that happened, and yet it reshaped a world. Our world would not be like it is if he hadn't noticed that. Because electricity was so new. It was something they were just beginning to play around with. The reason I bring that up, the reason I tell that story is because at Christmas time we have a similar situation. The most common small event happened. A Hebrew woman gave birth to a child, and it would have been easy to overlook. But that one single event changed the course of human history, and it will change our future. There's more coming. So as we've been going through um, Advent, we've been looking at the second Advent, Christ's return. And so this week, we're going to look at our future king. What does it mean that Jesus is going to reign? And since it's Christmas, I thought it would be appropriate to end the Sermon on the Christmas Story, So I want to tell this one backwards. We'll start at his future reign, come to his current reign, and then how did he become king to begin with? So let's look at it that way. And Psalm 2 is actually a really good way to frame this discussion. So let's take a look at our future king. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is what the nations have been like since there have been nations. The nations think that they are it. They are the big thing. So whatever government it is, king, potentate, prime minister, president, federal government, uh, parliament, whatever, they think this is it. We are the ultimate authority. And what we decide we're going to do, we're going to do. And, and that is how things have always gone. The, king, the nations have always been raging. Since the fall of man, since the, the very first uh, city was built, the king of the city thought he was large and in charge. I am the guy. I will do as I please. And so this is what has been happening all along. But God has actually been ruling in the midst of that. That's why it says that let us burst bond, uh, the bonds apart, is the nations realize there are constraints. And you remember when we went through Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar learned this story. He learned this lesson, and he learned it the hard way because his pride had welled up in him, and he said, behold, great Babylon that I have built. Why do the nations rage? And God turned him into an animal and made him eat grass for a period of time. And at the end, um, he came to his senses. And so this is how he explains, he retells his story in in Daniel chapter 4. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Why do the nations rage? Nebuchadnezzar learned it. He got it. There is, some, there is a king that's greater than I. And he was humbled. And so this is the current state of what it's like is, is in the nations is they are raging. They are plotting. They are scheming. They are gonna do their thing. They're gonna set up the rules that they want. And what is God's response to that? How does God respond when he looks down from heaven and he sees the nations scheming and plotting? Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. It's funny. It's humorous to watch the nation's rage. It's, it's, it's funny to him that these little tiny ants are going to make this big huge thing and, and they're going to plot these great things. And he's, he's saying, I know the beginning from the end. I know the end from the beginning. I am the alpha and omega. I know where the course of human history is going. So you go ahead and you plot and you rage. And he laughs. He holds them in derision. Derision is a mocking kind of laugh, like, oh, you guys. That's God's response to these nations raging. And by the way, that includes our nation. As, as we try to do our own thing, as we go our own way, God laughs at our nation too. He laughs at all the nations, all the nations rage, and he holds them in, division, in derision. But it's not all laughs. It's not always God just laughing and mocking because verse 5 says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. So there is a point where God looks and he laughs. He says, you guys, are I can't believe you do this. This is incredible that you would try these things. And it stirs in him his wrath. But notice the verse starts with, then he will speak. There is a coming day when he will address this, when he will deal with these things. Then he will speak. And how will he address this? How will he address the raging and and the, the scheming of the nations? He will say, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. When God looks and he sees the nations plotting and planning and scheming and raging and they're going to do this and they're going to do that, his response, his fix for this is, I will set my king on my holy hill. I'm sending one who will rule the nations. I'm sending one who will take care of this. So your plotting and your scheming will be gone. I will set my king on my holy hill. There is a day coming where their king that God has established will come and reign over the nations. Now, when we look through redemptive history, we got tastes of it. We got samples of it. You see David begin uh, the beginning of the kings in uh, Israel. He, he gathers the two nations together, and he unites them. And, and he, he brings peace. He settles all the, the enemies around him. And then his son Solomon takes over, and suddenly the nation is rich and prosperous. And you see the nations come to see what are they doing? How are they doing this? And, but it was only a taste. It was in, an imperfect sample because what did David do? Well, he committed adultery and killed a man to cover it. What did Solomon do? He he was told, don't multiply wives. He had 700. This is what happens when you move people, human beings, into positions of power. That's why it's really important for us to say, for God to tell us, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There is a king coming who won't be like that, who will be the fulfillment of David's covenant. He will bring righteousness and peace. So who is this king? Who can we wait for? And by the way, you don't vote for kings. Just putting that out there. We will not elect the coming king. He is God's king. God will set him on his holy hill. So who is this? Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God's son is the coming king. He's the one who will come and fulfill that. So this verse, by the way, is quoted um, a number of times, about four times in the Bible, uh, once in Acts and twice in Hebrews. And when it's quoted, it is applying to Jesus. Jesus is the son. Jesus is the coming king. Big surprise, right? Nobody guessed that. Um, But he is the one that God will establish on his holy hill. Jesus is the one who will come and who will reign. And as I mentioned, this was a fulfillment of David's covenant. God had promised to David that he would do this. David, after he had everything settled, he had everything done, he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm living in a palace with cedar walls. I'm going to build a temple for God because he's still dwelling in that tent that they built back in the Exodus. And God speaks to Nathan, the prophet, and says, go tell David. This is what I want you to say. This is kind of a summary of it, but it's 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And by house there, he means a dynasty, his his dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house, that is a temple, for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That also is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 as applying to Jesus. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, when it comes to biblical prophecy, there's usually an immediate fulfillment, and then there's a larger fulfillment further down the road. So in this, what we see is the immediate fulfillment is Solomon. He is the offspring of David. When David dies, Solomon ascends to the throne. Who built the temple? Solomon builds the temple. He constructed the building. He reigned miraculously, but one of the parts of the covenant that God made with David that I left out is it says, when he sins, I will correct him with the rods of men. And Solomon sinned. And that's why after Solomon, the kingdom is divided, is because of his sin. And so it's ripped in two. But that's not what the promise was. There is a promise that there will be one who will sit on your throne, not for his whole life, but forever. And so that's what they were waiting for. That's what they were looking forward to. This is the king that God will establish. And this is Jesus, the son of David, the son of God, the son of man. So the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of God's son won't be just Israel. It it won't just be this, this plot of land. It won't just be the Middle East. It will be the entire world. He will rule all the nations, everywhere. Now, when God made that promise, David had no idea that there was anything called North America or South America. But God did, and God said, when you rule, when your son rules, he will rule over all of this. It will be all his. So that's the promise. That's the coming uh, king that, who will come and who will rule. So what will his rule be like? What will it look like when he arrives and he rules? Well, what he says is that he will shatter them with a rod of iron. He will rule them like a like a rod of iron smacking a, a, an earthen vessel. So imagine you have a, a, a iron poker from your fireplace and you turn around and you accidentally hit the vase. Does the vase offer any resistance to that iron rod? <laughs> that iron rod sails right through it. After you get the thing done, you look at the iron rod, is it all mangled and damaged because it broke that vase? There is no opposition from that vase to that iron poker. That's what it will be like when Jesus rules. His reign will be unopposed and unopposable. He will rule from sea to sea and he will be the one who declares these things. He will rule over the nations, unopposed. It it just won't happen. There won't be any any kind of opposition to him. So John explains this kind of rule. He gives us a picture of what that will look like in Revelation 19. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh are written, uh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus arriving to rule the nations. The nations array before him in opposition, and he slays them and the host of heaven the army of heaven what do they do in this battle they sit and watch as he strikes them with a rod of iron as he rules them with the word of his mouth our king will reign uncontested even when the nations oppose him it will be that simple it will just be over when he's done and so his rule his his rule over the nations what will that be be like it, it seems terrifying it seems like it will be utterly terrifying to have this king who can't be opposed, who can't be defeated, his army can't even be touched, rule. What will he be like? Well, what Jeremiah says is, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So his rule, his reign over the world will be filled with righteousness and justice. And so that's why the nations rage. I don't want righteousness and justice. I want it my way, which, you know, might work for some, but maybe not all. Not with King Jesus. He's going to rule in perfect righteousness and justice. So how is he reigning now then? What's happening currently? Well, we know that he's reigning now because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So he must reign, he is reigning now. But how is his reign happening at this point? Well, he's not reigning currently with that rod of iron, he's doing something different. He's reigning and by extending his commission, or I'm sorry, he's reigning by extending his kingdom by commissioning his church to make, baptize, or make disciples and baptize them. And you get this, Acts chapter eight, verse 12. This is when Philip has gone out from um, Jerusalem. He's gone into Samaria. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, here's the extension of the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So this is how the kingdom currently is expanding. This is the, the, the expansion of his kingdom is through preaching, and through baptism, and through disciple making. So here's how the psalm ends. This is how the psalm uh, explains what we're going through now. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. His current reign, his current rule is this extension of grace. Now is the time. Now is the offer. Kiss the son. When, when you oppose him on a battlefield, there's no chance to kiss him. It's too late. You've made your intentions known. So this is, this is the picture of Jesus coming. Currently, his reign is, church, you go out and tell people. Offer them terms of peace. Explain to them that the king is returning. He's coming back. And when he comes, it'll be too late. So this, this is similar. Everybody knows the story of Robin Hood. And it's fictionalized, and it's kind of trumped up a bit. But Richard the, Lion- Richard the Lionhearted was really a king. And Prince John really did rule in his place. The story goes like this. In 1190, Richard the Lionhearted went on a crusade. I think it was the third crusade if I remember right. So while he's gone, he established a regent to rule in his place. Well, his younger brother, Prince John, conspired against this regent and basically named himself everything short of king. He just kind of took over everything. So, as Richard's off, he's not exactly sure what's going on back in his kingdom, but he's returning from the, uh, from the conquest, from the, the crusade, and word is sent back to England, hey, Richard's returning. So, Prince John is now nervous, what am I going to do when he gets back? Um, has he been ruling well in his place? No, he's been trying to take his place. Well, as Richard is returning, his ship is wrecked, and so he has to go on land. And as he's passing through, Leopold, Duke Leopold of Austria, captured him and turned him over to the Holy Roman Empire. Um, so what happened at this point, he's arrested by the French, and Prince John begins to make a deal with the French. Hey, look, if you keep him, then we'll divide up the lands between you and I, and I'll be the king, and you'll be the king, and everything will be great. Um, but what he didn't know was going on is, is uh, Richard's mom was raising money from all the barons, and they paid his, his uh, ransom, and he escaped. And so when he returns, John takes off and fled to, um, fled to France. That kind of a long-involved story, the politics of the kings is always kind of weird. Like, this is your brother, dude. <laughs> you know, why would you do that? But it's kind of a picture of what's happening now. The nations are raging. Prince John is just having his way. But the king is coming, and the word has reached them. By the way, the king is coming. He's on his way. So John... Here's the terms of peace. Are you going to lay down your weapons? Are you going to welcome your brother back and turn the kingdom over to him like he's supposed to? And, and he doesn't. And it doesn't go well for him. So the, me- the message here is right now is the time. Now is the time to make peace. Kiss the son lest he be angry. He, he's offering this extension to you. Um, remember Jesus' parable in Luke 19 about a man going off to receive a kingdom from a far country? When he returns, he calls his servants to give account for what have you been doing while I've been gone. And two of them are praised, and and they did well. And one of them is rebuked because he didn't do much. He didn't do anything. He was afraid. He knows that the king is a severe man. But the parable ends by a a most shocking statement. The king says, but as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here before me and slaughter them before me. That's this horrifying picture of the judgment coming. We will be judged. We will have to give an account to that king when he shows up and his enemies don't get a second chance. Kiss the son. So here's the last question. How did he become king? How did he get to that place? The the king did not win a victory in some glorious battle, riding on a horse and defeating his enemies. He didn't pull a sword from a stone. He, He wasn't heir apparent and just waiting for his father to die. He wasn't elevated by forming strategic alliances and and political manipulations. He became a king by being born. And so we we heard the story a number of times. We sang it in Matthew chapter 2 when the, the wise men come. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? Well, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Herod's response is not, dude, I'm the king. Herod's response is, oh my gosh, he's coming. He's here. Wipe him out. He, he understood what that meant. So Jesus comes not as this terrifying reigning king, but as an infant in a manger, as a baby born who, whose mother has to suckle him or he's going to die. who who he has to have his diapers changed. This is the terrifying king who reigns. This this is what the incarnation looks like. And as he grows, as he he begins to mature and he becomes into his fullness, even when he's walking around Jerusalem teaching, he's still humble and lowly. Think of Palm Sunday, right? He comes into Jerusalem. Does he come in on a war horse with a sword? Going, bring me the Romans and slay them before me. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation as he humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Even then, he comes in humility, offering terms of peace. Come, I'm bringing righteousness. I'm bringing salvation. Come. He comes with the warning, but also with the promise. And that's the infant in the major. That is the story of Christmas is your king has arrived. Kiss him. It's time to pay homage. It's time to recognize that he is the one who has come. It's like that compass needle twitching when Orsted applied a little electricity. It was the smallest little thing. It would have been easy to ignore, to overlook, to forget, but it changed the world The impact of it was immense. This little baby born in a manger, a small, a normal thing. How many babies are born? It's, It's one of the most common things in human history is to have a baby born, and yet this baby was that twitch of the compass needle. This baby was born of a virgin. This baby had wise men from the East come and say, where is he that we may worship him? This baby was recognized and feared Herod hated him Herod was terrified of it and yet he's just a little child and what came of that birth the universe is different the, the whole world has changed and where it's going where it's heading is peace and righteousness and terror for those who oppose it so kiss the king lest he be angry Zechariah 4:10 warns us to not despise the day of small things or small beginnings the day of small things or small beginnings can have tremendous impact let's pray lord jesus i pray for your church in america in the west and across the world lord that we would take the great commission quite seriously that we are extending to a rebellious world terms of peace and lord the, ter- the terms couldn't be more gracious and more kind simply trust in the king who, com- who is coming. And so, Lord, I pray that you would fit your church, that you would equip her with not just the tools to tell the story, to offer the terms, but also, Lord, the passion and the desire to do so, the love for the promise of the coming kingdom. And, Lord, would your worldwide church, your church around the globe, announce the tremendously great news that the king is coming and also issue the tremendous warning that those who oppose him will be brought and slaughtered before him. Lord, there's a day of reckoning coming when your wrath will rise. And we pray that before that day, we will have completed the mission, that we will have spent those talents that you've given us well, that we will have invested them so that we increase your kingdom, that we would do the things you've commissioned us to do. And Lord, through all of this, we are grateful for the infant in the manger, that you came to us a terrifying a powerful king and yet came so lowly and so soft and tender. Lord, it belays the fact that your return will not be so kind. It will not be so so easy for those who have opposed. And so help us, Lord, to announce that to the nations. We ask all of these things in your precious name. Amen.